Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Builders. Pastors Philip and Michelle Still are dedicated to building your faith and framing your world by the Word of God. There are many more resources available on our website, www.buildfaith.net, where you can find links to our audio and video archives. We also invite you to join us online for our live stream services. Remember to build your faith and frame your world by the Word of God. In your Bible, if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to take just uh, however much time the Lord would have us to spend and bring glory and honor to the blood of Jesus in our lives. Everything that is spiritual in our provision requires faith to receive. And faith comes by hearing. And for us to have mental assent or mental acknowledgement of something that is spiritual is not a receiving of it. A mental assent or a mental acknowledgement, yes, the blood of Jesus is, is capable of cleansing me, doesn't mean by faith you've, you've received that cleansing. There, that mental acknowledgement deceives people sometimes and they think they're in faith. But the Bible says we, having the same spirit of faith, what do we do? We believe and then what? We speak. So spiritual acquisition requires the believing in the heart and the speaking with our mouth. Our mind is involved in the process, but it's not the origin of our faith. Faith begins in the heart. The word in the heart is where faith is produced. And then you take the revelation that that faith provides and you renew the mind with it. You renew the mind. And so there is a need for the understanding, a need for the renewing of the mind, but we cannot assume we cannot just just leave to the mind what is designed to be done in the spirit and so the spiritual force must be released in the mouth but there must be a spiritual substance in the heart to fill the words that come out of the mouth so without taking time in the Word to put it into the heart, there won't be any substance in the heart to put in my words that I speak into my situation. So that's why we're going to take some time in the Word today to put faith in our heart concerning the blood of Jesus. Now there are, the reason that we have CDs and podcasts and, and all of the videos on our YouTube channel is to enable you to go back and listen to specific things that you need to develop in. When Pastor did 21 weeks on authority, exercising our authority, 21 weeks, 
You can go back, you can watch it on the video, you can listen to the podcast, you can get the flash drive, and we, we just went ahead and put it on flash drive because 21 CDs is a big box of CDs to carry around, right? And so, so you can hear that and develop in it. He's been over 21, 20 some odd weeks on I Have a Covenant earlier this year, and that same amount of, of uh, times of healing school, Amen. I have a covenant. I mean, there's healing school every week, and you could just put the healing school playlist on and grow in that. But the purpose is so that you can zone in to that specific topic, and you can grow in that area uh, while pastor who is sh- uh, uh, shepherding as in shepherding, he can't just stay on one topic. He's got to feed and, and cover many different topics. And so this topic about the blood of Jesus is one that as believers, we need to visit often. If I were to, to advise you, counsel you, you need to have a CD series or some books to study on the name of Jesus and make it in your plan every year to, to study on the name of Jesus often. To study on the blood of Jesus often. Why? Because those are supernatural equippings. Amen. Supernatural equippings that we don't want to get in the middle of a battle and find out we're in mental ascent. And we've got it here, but we don't have any substance in our heart where the name of Jesus is concerned. We're like, I know the name, but believing and knowing operate in two different places. So faith is of the heart, and faith comes by the word being planted in the heart, by hearing and hearing the word. That's planting it in the heart according to the parable of the sower. He said, when they heard the word, the seed was sown. When they heard the word, the seed was sown. When they heard the word, the seed was sown. And so when you hear the word about the blood of Jesus, the seed of faith concerning the blood of Jesus is deposited in your heart and you can strengthen your spiritual substance and build a reserve of faith in your heart concerning the blood, concerning the name. And it doesn't just happen automatically because you own a Bible or attend faith builders. It happens because you purposefully tune your ear in to hear What thus saith the Spirit of the Lord about the blood, about the name. And so when I see the importance of the blood, the more I study it, the more I see. The more I look at the blood and its purpose in the life of a believer, the more I realize how I lived the first part of my Christianity dealing with things that were more difficult for me because I lacked an understanding about the blood. I didn't have the knowledge that I have today concerning the blood. So I'm going to help you not have to face any of those things unequipped. With with the blood of Jesus, we have more than one interaction with the blood. And most of the time, people recognize the need for the blood in the initial moments of their salvation because we know that blood paid for my sin debt. We sang about that this morning. My, my, my debts, 
my sin debt. I could not pay it. With, it, with everything, I couldn't have paid it. But Jesus paid that. And I, that faith in that blood is the release of, of that I believe Jesus died for me. His blood was shed and His blood qualified as the accurate payment. And then most people leave it there and they're like, well, what do I do with the blood after that? So we're going to find out how the blood is supposed to operate in our life continually. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. This is a comparison, we're going to find out, of what was available under the old covenant versus what's available in Christ under the new covenant. The first covenant had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the gold pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone. Now I'm going to stop here and let's just bring a clarity to what we just read. That was a description of how the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple of Solomon was set up. It was set up so that the people came to the gate and at the entrance there was a brazen altar. They would bring their sacrifices and they would stop there and they would watch as the priest offered their sacrifice on the brazen altar. But that's as far as the people went. The priests that were operating in the outer court, they had a certain level of sanctification, but they did not have the sanctification that enabled them to enter into the holy of holies. So there were outer court priests. There was the priest that went in. And so inside that first room, there was the table of showbread. And every, every week, I believe it was, they, they, each tribe would present a, a loaf of bread that represented their life. It represented their daily lives. And they placed that bread there in this holy place, that first room. And there were like 12 little shelves. And so they put those shelves, of the, the bread, each loaf from each of the 12 tribes on those shelves. And it was, it was also called, when it says showbread, that doesn't ring to us, but it means the bread of the presence. And so that, that bread was constantly in the presence of God. And have y'all ever went into a place next to a bakery? 
like maybe you went into a store next to a Subway and you can smell the bread from Subway in the store next to it. There, mm, that bread. And you're like, I got to visit Subway before I leave because mm, that bread. Well, that bread was not only fragrant in the face of God, but it was there displayed before him. And it represented the lives of the people displayed before God. The bread of the presence. And so the, there was a work done in that, that first part where they had the, the table of uh, the table, the showbread, the, um, the candlestick, which was actually an oil lamp, and so the oil represented, and they had to keep it lit, and they had, had different um, uh, offer, uh, offered incense and just, just ministered to the Lord. It was ministering to the Lord. And then when it says into the second, it's talking about the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a veil. That veil was very thick. That veil was not just a curtain, like a sheer curtain we have here, or even maybe a thicker curtain in your house. It was, it was as thick as a man's hand. It was not easy to, to tear. It was a very thick veil, and it was separating the holy place from the most holy place, and in the most holy place was where the presence of God abode. And it says, the second, into the second went the high priest alone, or you could say only. Only the high priest. And notice this, he went not without blood. He went every year not without blood. He entered with blood. Blood was the entrance. Blood was, was escorting him in. It was the blood, that was his purpose for being there. Because he took that blood and he, per, he placed it, he poured it on the mercy seat. And that blood was the blood of those sacrifices of those animals that the people had brought. So do you see, the people brought their lives to God through those sacrifices. Their, their covering was for a year, covering their sins for a year. And that blood was placed on the mercy seat so that God could deal with them through the blood. Now, I have to admit to you, when I first got saved and I went to, to church and, you know, I was there in revival and they were, you know, preaching revival kind of sermons and, and I, that's where I started getting a hold of the word. But then they started a church and, you know, they began to feed sheep food. And the first time that the preacher talked about blood, I thought, what is this? This is so weird. This is disgusting. Why are we... Now, listen, I, was into, I knew all the horror movies. I'd watched all the gory. But here I am criticizing the preacher for preaching about blood in the pulpit. Because I had no understanding of what that meant. Why are we talking about blood and sacrifices? This sounds like a heathenistic kind of weird thing going on. Until I understood why God had to institute a blood covering. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
God had to cover them. And that's the first reference to blood being shed. God covered them with the skins of animals. So animals, innocent animals, gave their lives, sacrificed their lives to cover Adam and Eve. And from that point, God begins to teach people how to approach him. He says, if you want to come to me, this is how to come to me. And so we see Cain coming to God with vegetables he had grown out of the dirt, the place that was cursed. He comes to God with what he grew, and, and God did not accept his offering. God did not accept his offering. But Abel, his brother, brought the first of his lambs, his sheep. He brings an offering to God of this innocent animal, and God accepted his offer. Now, before we think God was playing favorites, let's remember God talked to them. Abel made Hebrews 11 with his offering. It says, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. He did that by faith. And we know how does faith come? By hearing. So he heard and obeyed. He did it by faith. So what he heard is what he did. And he brought to God this offering that was accepted. And it was a blood offering. And then we have scriptural evidence that God spoke personally to Cain. He came to Cain and he said, why are you upset? If you do well, you will be accepted. If you would do what I said, we could could understand, right? Because he told him and now he's speaking to him as if you know what I told you to bring. If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And so there was an understanding to bring the blood. And Abel brought the blood offering to God. Every, every covenant that God cut had blood involved in the covenant. The blood, if you were to look from the beginning in Genesis with the fall of Adam and Eve, all throughout to the book of Revelation, and you were to say, what is the purpose of the blood? I have one word. Relationship. Relationship. The blood of the animals provided a relationship that they could not have had without the blood. If if they had not had that blood to cover their sins they would not have had even the limited interaction that they did have with God. It was limited. It was was a very uh, um, limited interaction. They didn't get past the gate. They didn't get past the brazen altar. None of those people had access in to see the showbread. None of them had access into the presence of God where the offering of incense was going up and where, uh, and and of course, even the people who worked at the brazen altar and in the holy place, they didn't have access into the most holy place. It was very limited. It was as if from the time of Adam's fall 
until the time that Jesus established a new and a living way. God had to visit his family in prison. Have you ever had to visit somebody in prison? Or had somebody visit you? If you were in prison or in jail? And you have to sit down and, and there's a, a wall between you and you have to pick up a phone? And you have to talk to them through that plexiglass wall? Or you have to lean over, there's this big thing and they've got a little tiny window right here and you've got to talk through the window? And, and that... That limited, and even I've, I've worked in, in prison uh, ministry, and I've walked past the family visitation room where they had for the state penitentiary, and they had to go through all of the, the, uh, the checks, you know, the, the uh, metal detection and pat-downs and fill out all this and provide all of this proof of identification just to get in a room and sit across a table from somebody that they love. They can't have, they, they, it, it's very limited. And they have an hour to play with their babies. They have an hour to talk to their wife. They have an hour to visit with their mom, with their dad, and then they have to separate and walk out of that room and not see them again until the next visit time is permitted. And that's what God had under the old covenant. That's the, that's the limited relationship that God had, and it could only be if the people would bring the, the sacrifice and cover their sins so that he could have this limited Prison visitation with his family. Why? Because sin had separated them from the life of God. Sin had separated them from the life of God, but God so loved them that he wanted to have even the limited interaction that he could have. Even the, the, the interaction that was, was difficult and that was, was cold, he, that was better than nothing. And so he established this system to provide people with a way to have a relationship with him. And then it says in chapter 9 and verse 7, it says that he entered in not without blood. Verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So the way into the holiest that the high priest went in, not without blood, he went in and he carried that blood, it was not open for anyone else to enter, and it was not open for him to enter in at his will. He had to come with blood, and, and, and he, he could only come at that prescribed time, for that prescribed purpose. So... This was all a shadow. Notice it called it a worldly sanctuary. Why? Because there is another one. There's the real one. Everything that they built on earth was just a model. It was just a, um, a replica of the real 
sanctuary, the real holy place. Hallelujah. And that real holy place is the one that Jesus presides in today. So let's go to the book of Leviticus and let's find out some established principles about the blood that will help us as we become skilled in applying the blood in our lives. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. If a person loses too much blood, they lose their life. Why? Because the life is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you. Thank you, Lord. This is a gift. God created animals and, and people with blood, and the blood helps provide, it, it provides the life flowing through our body. God gives it to us. He said, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. The blood is the redemptive substance. It's the blood that makes that redemptive action. Now, under the Old Testament, that atonement was a covering. Under the New Testament, our redemption is a complete removal of the sin because the blood is different. So when we're looking at this, the principle is still the same, though, that God has given us the blood on the altar, and it's the blood that has the redeeming quality. It's the blood that has the purifying quality. It is the blood that has the supernatural ability to, to cover under the Old Testament and cleanse in the new. With, with the institution of the Passover in the book of Exodus... God gave his people the opportunity to become skilled in applying the blood. Let's go back and look at Exodus chapter 12 and, and let's find out. They, they are an example for us. What God did here un, with the blood of the animal, the blood of the, the natural lamb, we have a greater working of that same application in the blood of our lamb that God provided. Our lamb, Jesus. Exodus chapter 12, and let's begin at verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of of their fathers, a lamb for a house. The man, the father in the house, he was responsible for providing or obtaining or bringing this lamb. Every man of the house 
provides a lamb for the house. Praise God. When John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, he is letting us know the Father has provided a lamb for the house, for the family. There's a lamb and it covers everyone in the family. A lamb for the house. You've got to partake of the lamb. I have to partake of the lamb. We have a, a responsibility to be the ones who receive of that lamb. But the Father has provided a lamb for the house. He says this lamb... Uh, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from among the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood. They shall take of the blood. They shall take the first thing, the first action, the first application that is instructed is take the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses. That's the door frame. We've just described the sides of the door frame and the top of the door frame. And the door is an entrance to to your home. And so your, your application of the blood is over the entrance to your life. Amen? The enter, because the home, according to Scripture, Jesus, He used a house to identify a life. He said, He that builds His house on the sand is like a person who hears my sayings but doesn't do, do them. But he that builds the house on the solid rock, he's not talking about a natural house that we live in. He's talking about our lives. And so the house is the life. He that takes the blood and applies the blood to their life, the entrance to their life, is going to receive a supernatural protection against the judgment that's going on around the cursed world around us. Today, we more than ever need to be skilled in putting the blood over the entrance to our life. Because judgment isn't supposed to come on the believer. We're redeemed from the curse. We're redeemed from the judgment that is coming upon the people who are rejecting God and choosing to, to spit in His face and live the, a life. And so we want to recognize that if that curse is trying to trespass upon our life, there's a blood to be raised up. There's a standard to be raised up against that curse for us to recognize, no, I'm redeemed from the curse. That is a curse. Inflammation is a curse. I don't have it in my body. My kids walking away from God, that's under the curse. I don't want that in my life. I plead the blood. I apply the blood. I take, I take the blood. I take it and I... I strike it over my life. How do we do that? With our faith, with our heart and our mouth, not our mind. Remember, you now this you, we see this isn't going to work with mental acknowledgement or mental assent. Yeah, I know the blood; it'll protect me. Do you believe it and do you say it? Because without believing it and saying it, hasn't been applied. You're not striking it until you have a sure, confident belief in your heart. I am redeemed by the blood. I'm redeemed by the blood. 
And I say I'm redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed from lack. I'm redeemed from sickness. I'm redeemed. Hallelujah. And why am I redeemed? Because I apply the blood. I apply the blood. So we've got to take it and strike it over the entrance to our lives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is so important. Now look at verse 12 of the same chapter. Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses. Say, my life. My life. The blood is a token on my life. What is that token? A token is a sign, a marker, a, a, an indication. The blood shall be to you an indication over your life, a sign over your life, a marker over your life. Where you are, and when I see the blood, when I see the blood, what's God looking for? He's looking for blood-washed lives. He's looking for blood-covered lives. He's looking for the application. Has anybody been applying the blood? Hallelujah. When I see the blood, if I've applied it in faith, he'll see it. He'll see that blood. And what's going to happen? He'll pass over. And what happens when, when he passes over? The plague shall not be upon me to destroy me. That's what happens when God sees the blood. The plague shall not be upon me to destroy me. Hallelujah. Why? The blood is the only substance that redeems. The blood is the only supernatural substance that provides this marker of my faith, this marker that I am a redeemed one. I am off limits to the destroyer. I am off limits. Hallelujah. We got to set that off limit sign up. Do not disturb. That's what the blood is saying. The enemy comes along, the judgment comes, and it sees do not disturb. No entrance. No entrance. Hallelujah. If you don't put the sign out, they're going to knock on your door. Right? If you don't put the do not disturb, knock on the door. Do not disturb. No entrance allowed. No destruction. Hallelujah. But it has to be applied. It has to be applied. Glory to God. Now, Exodus, while we're here, let's go over to chapter 29. Let's see another action of the blood. Exodus 29, and I want to look specifically at verse 37. And in this, they are being taught how to prepare the altar for the altar to be supernaturally equipped to receive their offerings on it. Because the altar was made out of natural substances. So what makes it supernatural? What makes the altar that they took out of man-made 
objects, the, the, the wood that they used or the brass that they used, whichever different kinds of materials from the world that they brought in to make this altar, what caused this altar to be supernatural in its working? This is the answer right here. Seven days you will make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And, it shall, and what were they to sanctify it with? If you'll look in the previous, it was blood. They told him specifically, offer a bullock for a sin offering for atonement and cleanse the altar. That's in verse 36. To cleanse the altar. When you have made an atonement for it, you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days you'll make an atonement for the altar. What was the atonement? A blood application. Seven days, this blood application for the altar to sanctify the altar. And what? And what? It shall be an altar most holy. Most holy. Now this, this altar made out of brass and wood now has become supernatural in its operation. It's not just a natural piece of brass. It's not just a natural piece of wood. Now it is an altar most holy. And what happens? Whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Whatever touches the altar. So now every offering that the people of God would bring and they would place upon that altar, now their sacrifice is received as a holy sacrifice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why? Because the blood on the altar sanctified the altar. And we have an altar. Hebrews chapter 13. Can you put verse 10? Hebrews 13 verse 10 says, We have an altar. We have an altar. We have an altar. Glory to God. Our altar has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. He shed His blood on all our altar. And when we take our lives and we say... I am crucified with Christ. What I'm saying is I have been, I've laid my life on the altar of the cross that has been sanctified by the blood of my Savior and is now a most holy altar and whatever touches the altar shall be holy and I am crucified. Just let me be crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. I've been on the altar with Him. Whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have an altar. And it's an altar that is a most holy altar. And it is an altar that sanctifies and makes holy whatever. When we, when we lay our lives down and, and, and yield, yield our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. Yielding our lives to follow Him. To take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. It says, whatever touches the altar shall be made holy. First Peter chapter 1, Glory to God. verse 18. Medahase. We have an altar. First Peter 1, verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain behavior. Conversation means behavior, lifestyle, 
received by the tradition from your fathers. But you were, you could say this, you were redeemed with the precious, the word precious means costly, highly honored. Costly blood. It cost him to make that blood an acceptable offering for our sins. It cost him. It's costly blood. It is highly honored blood. Hallelujah. We were redeemed with the precious blood, the costly blood, the highly honored blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This speaks of the cost. What it cost Jesus to provide that blood wasn't just the death, but it included his life. First of all, Jesus was born of a virgin. That was the orchestration of God. As I said earlier in the service, he had to orchestrate a a lineage through which a a righteous seed could come. He orchestrated through the flood, saving a righteous seed. And Noah became an establishing ground for David to be born. And through the years, when King David answered and responded to God, yielding his life to follow the plan of God, Hallelujah. All throughout all of those different people, how God orchestrated to bring Jesus through the womb of Mary. And Mary saying, be it unto me, Lord, according to your word. And then Jesus, born of a virgin, if you don't have faith, I'm not talking about mental assent. I'm not talking about mental acknowledgement. If you don't have faith that Jesus was born of a virgin, spend some time with that scripture. Spend some time with that scripture because Jesus' blood had to be different than than Adam's lineage, Adam's descendants. Jesus could not come from a descendant of Adam and have Adam's DNA in his blood. And if they do a blood test, they find the father's DNA. They prove the fatherhood by a blood test. And Jesus could not be in Adam's descendants, in Adam's lineage, because the blood of every person since Adam was corrupted blood. It was blood that was not qualified. Nobody else would have qualified for the cross. Nobody else had the necessary qualification of sinless blood. For there to be sinless blood, he had to be born of a virgin, and then he had to walk Free from sin in the face of every temptation. And the Bible says he was tempted in every way that you and I could be or have been tempted. And yet, without sin. Hallelujah. That's why it's highly honored blood. That's why the value of this blood is matchless. If you were to take one 
drop of the blood of Jesus and measure its value against every ounce of gold on the planet, every ounce of silver on the planet, every diamond, every ruby, every emerald, take them all, pile them in a big mountain and say, compared to one drop of blood, does all of this wealth even compare? Not even close. Not even close. Not even close in heaven's estimation. Hallelujah. The blood of Jesus has its value because he was a lamb, innocent, sinless, without spot, without blemish. And that's the life he gave. Complete obedience to the will of God. Oh, don't you long for that? I so desire that. Complete obedience. You know how I find it? The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. You know how you, the, the obedience of Jesus is available to you. I apply the blood of Jesus over my will, Father. Because the complete obedience to your will is found in his blood. So I apply the blood over my will. Over my character. Why the character, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The character of Jesus is in the blood. Do you want to have his integrity? Do you want to have his, his quality of, of, and his standard of excellence? It's in the blood. It's in the blood. Hallelujah. The word redeemed used here in this verse, verse 18, we were not redeemed with corruptible things, but redeemed with the precious blood. The word redeemed means deliverance from slavery by purchase. Deliverance from slavery by purchase. God purchased us. The word redeemed means he paid the price. Took us straight off the auction block of sin. And paid the highest price. He didn't negotiate. He didn't, he didn't try to look for all the flaws and, and, and bring the price down low. He, he paid the price. Hallelujah. Redeemed. Deliverance from slavery by purchase. And it includes everything God does for a sinner. Starting at the pardon from sin, but continuing to a full deliverance of the body by resurrection. My inheritance includes a glorified body. The full redeeming is redeeming my soul from death, redeeming my body on the day when I am resurrected together with Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and even now I am seated together with him. 1 John 1, 7, we're glorifying the blood together. And the outpouring of the blood preceded the outpouring of the glory, and I believe that's a pattern of God. God is preparing for an outpouring of the glory, and he's doing so with an outpouring of the blood. 1 John chapter 1 
and verse 7. But we, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. How? We walk in the light. We walk in the light. We're fellowshipping with God and with each other. And as we're walking in the light, there is a continual operation of the blood. We need to be calling for the blood, taking of the blood, applying the blood, interacting, worshiping God for His blood. Amen? Why? Because this blood is working to to cleanse and to maintain that cleansing. Revelation 1 speaks also of this cleansing. And then I'm going to give you insight into this Greek word here. Revelation 1, 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us. Listen, this is... This is This is the focus of worship. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and is a conjunction that marries the previous statement to the next statement. He has washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us, has made us in the washing, in the, because of the washing, as a result of the washing in His own blood, He has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. The washing of the blood, the word is, the word that we see in 1 John 1, 7 cleanses. That word means to cleanse for the purpose of dedication. To to cleanse for the purpose of sanctifying. It's a purging, and we're going to use it again here in another verse that's coming up. But that word means to cleanse for the purpose of holy use. So the blood is the qualifying agent for serving God. As kings and priests. Only the blood washed are positioned as kings and priests. He has washed us in his blood and made us kings and priests. The, without the washing of the blood, the equipping to be a king is, is not operative. It's not available. The equipping to be a king, and and when I say king, one who operates dominion, it's by the blood. And then king and priest, a priest is one who brings offerings to God, offerings of praise, offerings of our life. We we offer ourselves to God. We give him glory. We worship him and we represent him. Priests also represent him. What qualifies us for that? The blood. The blood has cleansed us 
equipping us to be kings and equipping us to be priests unto God. Hallelujah. What a privilege. Say, say, tell your neighbor, what a privilege. What a privilege. Hallelujah. So what makes the blood of Jesus so powerful? We've talked about the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, making his blood sinless from the onset, from the inception. We see that Jesus walked free from sin. So his blood was as of a lamb without spot, without blemish. But Acts chapter 20 also identifies an aspect of the blood. Acts chapter 20, I said if you could do a DNA test, you'll prove the fatherhood. Acts chapter 20 will also provide that testimony. Verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which He, God, has purchased with His, God's own blood. To feed the church of God, which God has purchased with God's own blood. How did God's blood get in Jesus? Hallelujah. It wasn't Adam's blood. The blood came through the word when he said, You will have a son and his name shall be Emmanuel and his government will rule. Hallelujah. The government will be upon his shoulders. And he will rule with the scepter of righteousness. All of the prophecies in that word. All things are created by the word. And without the word was not anything made that was made. And Jesus, the word of God. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Word, carried the blood, the DNA of God, and that's why the blood of Jesus on the altar in heaven is just as alive and vibrant and living today as it was the moment it left His veins. It did not die, it has not died, and it will never die. It is eternal. Not only in value, but also in its working. The blood is eternal blood. And it will never coagulate. It will never dry up on the altar. It will continue speaking as it does today. Better things than the blood of Abel spoke. The blood of Abel called out for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. Hallelujah. The blood is God's own blood. Hebrews chapter 4. We're still looking at this value of Jesus' blood. He was born of a virgin. He never sinned, causing his blood to be a sinless blood. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as are we, yet without sin. That's the scripture for what I said to you earlier about he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. This causes value to be placed on the blood. He never sinned. Hallelujah.
Hebrews chapter 10 gives us a contrast, a comparison of the old and the new. We saw it in Hebrews 9 that it was comparing the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and the most holy place and the, the different pieces of the furniture and then recognizing that that is the earthly temple and that we have a heavenly place of worship. Well, in chapter 10, it begins to make a contrast between all of the failure of the Old Testament, the limit of the Old Testament, what it was not capable of doing versus what the blood of Jesus is capable and has accomplished. So in verse 1, it says, The law having a shadow of good things to come. We have those good things, family. They had a shadow. We have the good things. It said the law can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, it could never make the comers thereunto perfect. It could never make the people who were coming to God perfect in their relationship with Him. The word perfect means complete. It's a word that means from beginning all the way to the end, fully developed and complete. So their offerings that they brought every year could never make their interaction, their relationship with God, complete. It was always limited. Why? Because the blood that they were offering on those altars was a limited blood. But in this same chapter, verse 14, shows us what Jesus did with His blood. For by one offering... He has perfected. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. He has made that interaction perfect. He has provided what is necessary for that to be a complete relationship with God. Now, it also talks about in verse 4. It says that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would take away sin. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. Back up to chapter 9 and read verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So Jesus did what the blood of the animal sacrifices could never do, It could never take away their sin, but His blood, He has obtained eternal redemption. That means a complete removal of sin. He's taken sin away. He was not only the the sin offering, but the scapegoat who carried our sin so far away from us that it could not return. Hallelujah. So Jesus, He accomplished what the blood of the animals could not accomplish with his blood he accomplished this eternal redemption removing sin from us and here in hebrews 9 the very next verse says if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh sprinkling Well, we saw from Exodus 12, they were to take the blood and strike it on the door. 
What is sprinkling of the blood? What is the sprinkling of the blood? In this same chapter, verse 19, it speaks of that. It said, when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament, which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled the blood, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged, purged, there's the word that I spoke to you about from Romans when it said washed, purged, when it says cleansed, purged, purged means cleansed for sanctification, cleansed and dedicated. In the purging, there is a setting aside for a holy purpose. It said so that's why he was sprinkling the blood. He sprinkled the tabernacle. He sprinkled the vessels of the ministry. And, and then he sprinkled the people. You can read the whole thing in Exodus chapter 24. He sprinkled the people. And the very next thing God said, make a tabernacle for me to dwell closer to you. In Exodus chapter 25, God said, prepare me a sanctuary. I want to be closer. Why? Because the sprinkling of the blood. What's the purpose of blood? Relationship. Relationship. The Old Testament blood only provided a limited relationship. The New Testament blood of Jesus provides this relationship that is complete. Hallelujah. He said, the sprinkling of the blood... Now I want to go back up, chapter 9, verse 14. He said, if the blood, in verse 13, he said, if the blood of bulls and goats could sprinkle, verse 14, how much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ? If, if there was a sprinkling of the blood, so do you see we, we've got more interaction with the blood available to us? A sprinkling of the blood under the Old Testament, the, the animals, the, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they would sprinkle for sanctifying. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? I want you to take that, that prepositional clause in the middle of there. Just move it over for just a minute. Purge your conscience. The blood of Christ, purge your conscience. See that prepositional phrase, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, just, just move it over in your, in your, you know, in grammar we used to take those sentences and we would diagram them, just put it over here on the side for a minute. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? That was... A game changer for me because I got saved I had lived a life of sin I'd lived a life of addiction I'd lived a life of crime I had a lot of shame attached to all of the wrongdoing all of the sins that I had done and I had faith that my record was clear 
You know, I'd been in trouble with the law enough, I knew what it was like to get something taken off your record. Get your record expunged. And what that means is that they can go looking in your background and it's been taken off the record. It's been expunged off the record. Even though you did it, but you have provided enough evidence that you're not living that life anymore and there's somebody who gives you favor that when you request it, it gets expunged off your record and now no corporation's going to find it and hold it against you and not hire you because it's been expunged. So I knew enough about, that's what I related. The blood of Jesus had expunged my sin record. And so they can pull it up, but I'm not who I was. I'm not what I did. I'm not those things I had done anymore. I'm not the number that used to be behind my name. I'm not, I'm not the, the person who put the needle in her arm. I'm not the person who committed the crimes I committed. I'm not that person. It's been expunged. But I still had shame. I didn't always consciously recognize it. It would be in moments that I didn't expect it, that I would sense shame, shame for something I had done. And it would cause me to draw back. It would cause me to keep quiet. It would cause me to hang my head. It wasn't anything that I even knew shouldn't have been there until this birth. I was doing a study about the blood of Jesus. And when I saw this verse, that there is an application of the blood that is supposed to purge my conscience, I thought, I need that. I need that because I can look back and I can see areas that battles I lost, I shouldn't have lost. It was a lack of knowledge. It was my, my allowing shame to have an operation in my life, to have its activity in my life because I'd never applied the blood to it. And let me tell you the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the standing a person is in because of wrongdoing, because of sin. If you were in a court of law, you could be found guilty. They would, they would sentence you as guilty to that. I find you guilty, right? I was guilty. You were guilty. We were guilty of sin. Jesus paid the price for our sin, removing that guilt. Shame is the painful feeling in the conscience that those sins caused. And that painful feeling in the conscience needs an application of the blood just like the guilt needed. But I didn't know that. Guilt affects the way God can relate to us. If we are guilty, we've got to deal with that guilt by the blood of Jesus so that God can legally have a right to approach us and interact with us. Without the blood, He has no legal right to do very much in our lives. 
So guilt affects the way God can deal with us. But shame affects the way I deal with God. And God, the guilt was dealt with. I had already released my faith that the guilt had been removed by the blood. It is expunged off my record. And so God was free to deal with me. His hands were untied. He was, he was fully liberated to move in my life. But I was the one drawing back. I was the one who, because shame was affecting the way I dealt with God, God would come to me and he'd come running with his arms outstretched and say, daughter, let me help you. I'm so excited to see you. And I would be like, yeah, but I'm so unworthy. And I would draw back from his embrace. I would draw back. Applying the blood to shame requires faith released out of the mouth the same way that it does to apply it to guilt. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and in his shedding of blood paid for our guilt. And we accepted Jesus as Lord by believing with our heart and confessing with our mouth and we were saved of that guilt. We were rescued from that guilt. The application of the blood that is referred to here as a sprinkling is us taking our faith and sprinkling that area of shame with those words of faith in the blood and say the blood of Jesus is applied to this area of shame in my life. I am free from the shame of what I did. Amen. And I'm going to say this. And I'm free from the shame of what they did to me. Amen. There were things done to me as a child that opened the door for shame to come into my life. And it wasn't my violation. It was somebody else violating me. And, and I felt ashamed. I'm free from that too. But I had to apply the blood and believe that the blood would purge me of that shame the same way that it expunged my guilt. Hallelujah. Righteousness worked after I did that. There were things I tried to believe God for and it was a battle I lost because I was trying to believe God and shame stood up and said, this is happening to you because what you did before. This is happening to you because of a sin you committed before. And the shame convinced me that I couldn't believe God for that. And instead of pulling up the breastplate of righteousness, I ended up with shame. But not after this. After this. After this. Righteousness worked the way it was supposed to work. Because shame and condemnation work against right standing. Righteousness simply means your right standing with God. And if you don't, you don't, if you don't have confidence of where you stand with God, spend more time with the blood. Let's finish in chapter 10, verse 19. Praise the Lord. 
Hebrews 10, 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness. That's proof that you believe in the blood. That's proof. If you, if you have faith in the blood, if you believe in the blood, there will be a boldness that you don't have to put on, you don't have to make it up, you don't have to fake it till you make it. It will be working in you. You will come with such a confidence and a boldness into the presence of God. You'll go to God in prayer with an excitement, with a confidence to be in His presence. Where do we get this boldness? To enter into the holiest. Boldness to enter into the holiest that wasn't even open before. Boldness to enter into the place that even the the outer court priest couldn't enter before. Only the high priest could go in and he had to go in with a blood sacrifice. We have boldness to go in by the blood. The blood provides this boldness. And it's a boldness that, that, that prompts us. It's a boldness that motivates us. It's a boldness that, that brings us into his presence with joy and with gladness. And we come so excited to talk to God. We're not talking about how low and how, how difficult and, and how unworthy we are. Because we've been in the saturation of the blood. If you're blood saturated, you're not unworthy anymore. You might have been unworthy before the blood, but once the blood got done with you, you are washed and made. Washed and made kings and priests. Washed and made kings and priests. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us, Through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is God's desire. This is God's desire. This is the reason for the blood relationship. Let us draw near. Draw near to God. Come to him. He wants to interact with us. More than, as much as any of you and I, as much as we interact with God, He would love more time with us. He would love more time with us. He would love to have more conversations with us. He says, draw near to me. Why? Because I've made the blood. You can come into my presence. The blood is available. And because of that blood, you have boldness to enter into the holiest. So let us draw near. With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. There it is again. Sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. The water of the word. Praise God. That's the desire and the purpose of Jesus' blood. That we could have the relationship with God that he's always desired. Would you bow your head right where you are? If you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the most important decision you will ever make in your life is to accept this blood as the sacrifice for your sin. There is no other way to God or heaven 
There is no other entrance. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. You can't just go to heaven because all of your family was saved. It is a personal, a personal choice. Jesus died for you personally. And for you to receive, you have to personally receive Him. And in receiving Him, everything He did for you and will still do in you and through you is available. But you've got to take the Lamb. And you've got to take the blood. And you've got to receive of the Lamb as your own.